welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. If you would, please turn with me to Genesis 37. Genesis 37. A special welcome to all of our visitors this morning. If this is your first time with us, then uh, I give you a heads up before we start that as a church, we just we work through books of the Bibles together. We started, I think, a year and two months ago in Genesis 1, verse 1. And now we have moved all the way to Genesis 37. Some, we didn't always just preach one sermon on one verse. I scared everybody when I preached the very first sermon, Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning God. And I just preached on that one sermon. Scared everybody. We're moving a little bit quicker now through the narratives. And this morning we're going to look at the entire chapter of Genesis 37. Uh, this morning we open to really the final story in the book of Genesis. We're not going to look at the entire story this morning, but we at least open this final story when we are going to look at the story of Joseph and his brothers. We're going to see in the very first sentences of this chapter, it's going to talk about the generations of Jacob. And contrary to the way we think in West, in the Western world, we would say, like, this is the generations of Jacob. And then we would tell the story about Jacob. But really, in the, in the scriptures, they say these are the generations of Jacob as kind of the closing of Jacob's life. And now this is the story of Jacob's generations, his sons that come after him. And so this really is where the story of Joseph and his brothers kicks off. And we're going to transition now for the next couple months in looking at this, this, this final story in Genesis. And these, these brothers... They are the original children of Israel. Remember, Israel is another name for Jacob. It's the name that God gave Jacob. And these 12 brothers were the founding members of God's nation. But as we've already seen, God has chosen a dysfunctional family filled with broken people. That is what we've seen so far, especially in the 12, well, in these brothers. So far, what we've heard about the brothers, it's been dysfunctional. There's been favoritism, brokenness, mass murder, plundering of an of a entire town, um, enslavement. We've already seen all these things already. And so what we've seen is a broken people. And today the theme will continue. Today we will see the chosen family ripped apart by bitterness, hatred, jealousy, and ultimately a conspiracy to commit murder. That's really what this chapter is about. It's, it's focusing on a conspiracy to commit murder. How could God possibly use such broken people to create a holy nation for His glory in the world? I mean, isn't that, doesn't that seem to be what God is doing with all the promises to the patriarchs? I, I am going to be your God. You are going to be my people. It's really the, the theme we're seeing developed here at the latter stages of the book of Genesis. So how can God do that? Well, I'm going to ask that question, how can God use these people? But today our chapter won't answer that question. This question is going to be left unanswered today, in this chapter at least. But it's this, our chapter simply presents the problem of a terribly broken people, the terribly broken people in God's family. But even in this chapter, in the midst of the brokenness, there are hints of the all-wise and all-powerful working of God to accomplish His good design, His good purpose. Even in the midst of brokenness and people, even in the, the family of God at this point in history, God is at work to accomplish His good purposes. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Before we begin, let's pray and ask God for His help. Heavenly Father, we love You. And we love the words that you have given us. Not because we like the crinkle of paper or just seeing fresh ink on a page. No, we love your word because it is from you. It is your love letter to your people so that we would know you, so that we would recognize ourselves in the mirror of your word, and so that we would rejoice 
in your work of salvation throughout human history. Lord, I pray that as we read this single chapter, that we would leave um, out these doors at the end of this morning, that we would leave rejoicing in who you are, that our hearts would be filled with love because of our God, who is the Savior of the world, who reached down and plucked sinners out of the mire of our own wickedness, of our own hearts that are rebels to God by birth and by choice. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with love and joy, and that we'd also see the warning against falling into the patterns of life that these ten older brothers lived out in this chapter. Thank you for your word. May your spirit work in our hearts and reveal the depths of our own evil desires, but the the greatness, the heights of God's love and of his salvation. We, We love you. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at Genesis 37 together, and we're going to read verses 1 through 11 to begin with. Verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. And here begins the story of his sons. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then... He dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow down ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying, in mind until there. These verses reveal the increasing jealousy and hatred growing in Jacob's family. Brokenness, brokenness, brokenness. I mean, it's just repeated over and over again. In fact, what we just read is the list of the motives for evil deeds. It's a list. It's really just showing the the increasing heat in the hearts of these ten older brothers. These are the motives of the evil deeds that are about to come. Motives simply mean the circumstances and desires which drive action. So circumstances meet the desires of our hearts and then it drives action. These are motives. And throughout the past few chapters, not just in this chapter, but in the past few, there have been several circumstances and desires or motives which have resulted in jealous hatred. Let's look back for just a moment. We've already seen that there was rivalry among Jacob's four wives. This rivalry is then passed on to the twelve sons who all have the same dad but different moms. We saw Jacob's then avert favoritism in chapter 33 when Jacob puts Rachel and Joseph in the back of the family procession as they're heading towards Esau and Esau is charging towards them with 400 armed men as if he's getting ready to just wipe out Jacob's family. So what does Jacob do? He kind of staggers his family based on who's his favorite. And Joseph and Rachel are all the way, way back there, the last to be slaughtered while the rest of the family become human shields. That's really what we saw in chapter 33. We also saw in chapter 34 how Simeon And Levi are outraged at Jacob's passive response when Dinah, their sister, is violated. So Dinah 
Levi and Simeon are the sons of Leah, or the children of Leah, rather. And these children of Leah, these sons of Leah, Simeon and Levi, assume that their father, Jacob, really didn't care about Dinah, since Dinah wasn't one of the precious children of Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife. You see in that story that Jacob doesn't respond with, with action and, and with this outrage against Dinah, as if you kind of imagine that if something bad had happened to Joseph, we kind of see what happens in his heart when something bad happens to Joseph. So Simeon and Levi are outraged at Jacob's passive response. Now we come to chapter 37. Rachel has died, but Jacob overtly loves her son Joseph more than any of his other sons. This embitters the ten older brothers, and while they may have grumbled against their father, they hate Joseph. And it's interesting to see this, that, that the brothers, first and foremost, it's repeated over and over again, first and foremost, they hated Joseph because of Jacob's favoritism. Now think about it. Jacob is the one who is sinning against them. He's sinning against his family by treating some children as slaves. Go take care of the sheep while treating another like a little prince. Joseph is the one he protects and he has this close relationship with. But even in this situation where Jacob is the one who's clearly in sin for his favoritism, the brothers instinctively turn their hate on the one who is being elevated above them. Even though he was a little child, I mean, this hatred began when Joseph was probably around seven years old, or even before that, when he was first put in the back of the procession heading towards Esau. Things only escalate from here. We're told that Joseph was keeping sheep with some of his older brother, older half-brothers, and when he came home, he brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, theologians have, spent, have almost written entire books on this phrase to try and either protect Joseph's innocence in this situation or to paint Joseph as the, as the villain in this situation because a bad report can mean or could mean a false or evil report, meaning that Joseph gave inaccurate testimony about his brothers in order to advance himself in the family. So this could be selfish lies that Joseph tells in order to exalt himself. It's possible. But just as likely, and in my mind more likely, the older brothers who had already been involved in some shady business in Shechem that we already saw, these older brothers were most likely, in my opinion, unfaithful in some way, according to Joseph's standard, and Joseph was genuinely concerned about either their ungodliness or their unfaithfulness in the task that their father had given them. Thus, he comes to his father, which he has a really close relationship, and he's like, Dad... These half-brothers of mine, these, these somewhat lesser sons, they're not really doing a good job. Or they're unfaithful in some way. And you can imagine the tension that this brings when the brothers find out about it. When Jacob comes out and says, Joseph says that you guys have been doing this. You're a 17-year-old brother. Like, it's not really building the, the affections of family unity and all of this, these feelings that we hope to build in the family. So either one is possible. It could have been a false or an inaccurate report, or it could have just been Joseph in his uh, genuineness trying to be concerned about his father's livestock. Either way, either one would have created tension in this family because Joseph was clearly loved by Jacob, heard by Jacob, and trusted by Jacob far more than any of his older brothers. Either way, this is creating this bitterness in the heart of the ten older brothers. Things deteriorate rapidly from here because Jacob makes Joseph's favored position and elevated status above his half-brothers painfully clear when, jo- when Joseph is given a special robe. Jacob gives Joseph this special robe. Now, most of your Bibles, tra- most of your translations say a robe or a coat of many colors. And so when children storytell, you know, Bible storytellers draw the pictures and stuff, they give this rainbow coat that Joseph's walking around with. And most people agree that's not what this most likely was what looked like. 
This doesn't mean a, a rainbow coat. Instead, this phrase describes a robe that, have, that could have been from the shoulders all the way down to the ankles, that had long sleeves, and that most likely had some kind of embellishment. It had like embroidery on it, or maybe even been like laced with some, like, some gold or silver, some kind of you know, precious uh, metals. It could have been either way. Um, this is extravagant. This robe that is given to Joseph for shepherds, which is what his brothers were doing. They were shepherds. Um, this was extravagant um, clothing. That's really the point. And the only other time this Hebrew phrase is used in the Bible is, is when it's used to describe the royal robes that some of King David's children wore. So this is the king's children when they're walking around town. This is the robe they put on to say, I'm one of the children of the king. This is the only other phrase. The only time this phrase is used to describe clothing in the Old Testament. So then Jacob, um, when he gives this robe, and when he puts this extravagant gift on Joseph's shoulders, he is proclaiming his favoritism. He is reminding his other sons of their second class status. And he's predicting Joseph's right to the firstborn's blessing as the firstborn son of his favorite wife, Rachel. That's really what he's declaring here through this robe. Jacob then begins employing Joseph as a general manager or as some kind of inspector over his older brothers. This story just keeps getting better. Jacob's older sons would have ranged from 18 to 31 years old. So we've got a 31-year-old Reuben, most likely, out here. He's really the leader of this band of miscreants. And Joseph, this pipsqueak 17-year-old, barely even able to grow fuzz on his upper lip, and he's acting like a general manager or a quality control inspector over these 30-year-old men who are old enough to have children of their own. So Joseph's kind of growing up, possibly even with their children. He's in the child category with my, my younger children. Like, and now Joseph, at 17, is being used as a general manager over them. Verse 4 tells us that when Joseph's brothers saw this, that their, fit, that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. The heat of life has been turned up in the lives of these ten older brothers, and when combined with their lusts, so the heat of life combined with their lust for equality, position, respect, and their rights, you combine the situation with their lusts for these things, the seed of bitterness and hatred is then sown in their hearts. So I use the word lust intentionally, that they lusted for these things. Because the desire for equal love and respect amongst your dad and your other siblings isn't a bad desire. That is actually a good desire. As a father, it's, good, it's a good desire to treat your children equally. And as a child, it's a good desire to be treated with fairness by your parents. That's a good desire. But when we must have, when we must have these good things in order to continue, to continue honoring God with our heart, our words, and actions, when we must have these things, then these good desires mutate into lusts. A lust is something, is a desire which is out of control. Or a desire that's roaming outside of God's righteous good boundaries for our desires and when we desire something to the extent that we must have it in order to obey God the moment we don't have it it will be revealed as a lust of our heart because it will show you cannot it cannot be hidden if you lust after something when you don't get it then your actions will show its place in your heart the ten older brothers have lusted after equal treatment or their rights. And because they have got, haven't gotten what they must have, they have permitted bitterness and hatred to grow in their hearts. And what we permit to grow in our hearts will not stay there. 
It's not like we can just let bitterness just hang out in our hearts with no consequences. That's just not how the human heart works. It either must be killed or it will be permitted to grow. It's not going to just be neutral in our hearts. The seed of bitterness has grown into hate. And hate has blossomed now into hateful speech. That's what we read. It's hateful speech to the point that Joseph's brothers couldn't say a single peaceful thing to him. Every time they spoke to him or about him, the brothers' words were laced with the poison of hate. Most, if not all of us here today, have experienced this poisonous cycle personally. I have. I've experienced this. Our desires were out of bounds, outside God's bounds for good desires. And when we didn't get what we had to have, what we must have, then we permitted bitterness to be sown in our hearts. And left to itself, the wheat of bitterness flowers into hate, and hate overflows into our actions. To the point that even in a, even in a Christian, God-fearing family, we may not even have the ability to be in the same room with somebody. Or couldn't even speak to them. And when we do speak to them, things quickly overflow into this tense, argumentative, just like hatefulness in our speech. But oh, how sweet it is to tear down somebody we hate when they're not around. Or oh, how sweet it is to finally, on that day when we just allow bitterness and hate to grow and grow and grow, where we finally explode to that person. We get to release all of this years of pent-up bitterness and hate. So what we see is that even desiring for good things like equal treatment, fair treatment, justice, even desiring for these things, if not kept in submission to God's timing and to God's seeing to all things, even these good desires, if not kept in submission, can become the motives for evil deeds. And that's how we, we tend to justify ourselves. We know it is unjust for a father to show favorites. So we justify our bitterness and hate. But God says, you are not just in your bitterness and hate. God says, leave vengeance up to me. God says, I am the righteous judge. God says, love your enemies, show kindness to them. That is how you present Christ in you to the world around you, even if it is unjust. So that is what we're, we have not seen in this story. But that is what we as Christians are called to. And we are to take this warning that even good desires, if not in submission to God's timing and His control over all things, if not kept in submission, these good desires can grow into the motives for evil deeds. At this point in the narrative, we, we, we see things rapidly deteriorating in the family of promise. And we may be thinking it's time for God to step in and rebuke these brothers or warn Jacob and say, you know, your brothers are, your, your sons are headed in the wrong direction. Or God could warn Joseph saying, watch out, your brother's I see all things. I see the future. I know what's coming. Watch out. Isn't it about time for God to intervene? Well, we see in the next verses that God does intervene at this point in the story. But to be frank with you, it's not in the way I think is very helpful. I don't think these dreams that are from God are very helpful in this scenario. God, in fact, pours fuel onto the fire of Jacob's family. This, this burning dumpster fire of his family, God pours more fuel onto it through these dreams. And he notches up the heat in this family, two more notches with these two dreams. And in both dreams, the message is the same, and the response is the same in both these dreams. The, first, the, the, the message God is revealing in both these dreams is, to Joseph is the picture of his family all bowing down to him in reverence one day as if he is a ruler over all of them. That's just really helping this family unity amongst his younger brother scenarios. It's really, you know, humanly speaking, this is real helpful. And this response to the message is predictable. 
And it's the same in both times. His brothers, in verse, verse 8, says, hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Hatred has increased as the heat has been turned up. Even Jacob, the father, the patriarch, was insulted by his favorite son's dreams. This may be one of the only times Joseph was ever rebuked by his, by his loving, doting father. Because it implied that Jacob would do homage to his son one day, which was an insulting prospect for the patriarch of the family. But notice with me the subtle yet crucial difference in Jacob's response compared to the older brother's response. The, old, the older brothers rebuked Joseph and then hated him even more than ever. But Jacob, he was insulted and rebuked Joseph at first. But then the passage says that Jacob kept the saying in mind. His first response was like, get out of here. You know, maybe I have spoiled you a little bit too much. Maybe, you know, Fox Law every now and then would have been good for you. But, but then he, goes, he pulls back later and he says, he kept the saying in mind. Jacob knew a thing or two about receiving a dream from God. Remember Jacob's dream of the angels climbing up and, and descending down this ladder into heaven? This was a dream that Jacob had. And Jacob had also experienced God's choosing of him over his older brother Esau. So he was the younger also. Jacob was the younger. So Jacob steps, steps back from this at first insulting dream and he ponders if this truly is God revealing what he would do in the next generation. Jacob knew God and he was willing to bow his knee to God's purposes. That's really what this phrase that Jacob ponders these things. He's starting to, he's, he's thinking about all God has done and he's thinking, God, if this truly is you, I, I want to align my heart to what you, your good designs. That's really what this phrase is, is talking about with Jacob. He's pondering these things. He's kept the saying in mind, maybe this is from God. Maybe God really is working in this way. But not so with the older brothers. Their spiritual journeys were just beginning, and their beginnings were off to a very rough start. Let's not forget the messy incident of mass murder and plunder of Shechem. So their spiritual journeys are off to a rough start. And at this point, the older brothers didn't seem to care whether or not Joseph's dreams were just because of some indigestion Joseph had the night before, or if it was truly a message from God. They didn't really care. Either way, it didn't matter. They hated Joseph for his dreams. That's the overarching message here. They weren't evaluating whether this is from God. They didn't care. We hate this guy. We hate him for his dreams. And the same was true all the way back earlier in Genesis with the first two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain hated Abel because God accepted Abel's sacrifice. Cain knew God was pleased with his brother Abel. Cain knew that he was in the wrong, but it didn't matter to Cain that he was going against God's will that had been revealed to him. Cain just hated Abel and he killed him in the fields. The same was true of Ishmael. Ishmael didn't care that Isaac was the child that God had promised. Ishmael just hated Isaac and wanted his younger brother, our younger half-brother, out of the way. The same was true of Esau. Esau didn't care that God declared Jacob to be the son who would inherit the firstborn's blessing through a dream. Esau just hated Jacob and planned to kill Jacob in order to reverse God's design. God had said, Jacob will be the firstborn. Esau says, I don't care what you say. I'm going to kill Jacob. So the firstborn's blessing reverts back to me. What we're seeing here in this Genesis outplay of, of sibling rivalry and this fighting against the plans of God or the, the uh, motives of God is that if our desires are not in submission to God's right to rule as He wishes over everything that He has made, if, if our desires are not bowing to the knee to God as King, then our desires will become the motives for evil deeds. That's what we're seeing here throughout all this repetitious cycle. If you don't care about God's right to rule over everything He has made, if you don't care about that, then your desires will be the motives 
for evil deeds. And with these dreams, God has revealed how he has determined to rule. He's, God is saying, I am the king, and this is what I am going to do in the house of Jacob. I am going to exalt Joseph over his brothers and even over the rest of his family, his father included. And what was the brother's responsibility? What was this family's responsibility? The brother's responsibility was to bow the knee to God as God revealed his will. To be sensitive to the will and the ways of God that as God reveals his purposes we bow the knee to God, even if in our flesh we don't like what he, the person He's exalting above us. Out of control desires, these lusts, combined with life circumstances where the heat of life is being tur- turned up, it's like an oven and someone's just turned the heat up in our life. Out of control desires, combined with the heat of life, equal the result that there's motives for evil deeds. Our motives will be revealed by the heat of life. So let's keep reading here in verse 12. Let's look back at the passage and continue with this story. Now Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. He's traveling north. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. In verse 18, They saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Notice with me that this, that this section we just read describes the opportunity for evil deeds. The opportunity for evil deeds. Joseph's brothers have been gone for some time, pasturing the flock to the north. In order to find grazing that was better or more, you know, where water was more plentiful, they were required to do this in this land where they moved their very large flock from from one grazing pasture to the next. And wondering if anything has happened to them, Jacob sends his executive officer, this general manager slash inspector, to go check up on these less than trustworthy older brothers. It's really what's happening here. It's hard to ignore, though, that throughout this chapter, Joseph is portrayed in a positive light. I mean, you could argue for the whole evil report thing, but in my mind, this chapter seems to be painting Joseph in a positive light. He is faithful to his father rather than giving in to his older brother's peer pressure. I mean, if there's a 30-year-old guy being unfaithful, being lazy, letting the the wolves come at night because they're all sleeping and they're carrying off some sheep, it'd be real easy as a 17-year-old with your 30-year-old brothers just to be like, hey, you know, these guys know more, they're older, they're really in charge, I'm going to just keep quiet. That's peer pressure. But it does seem to be that this chapter is painting Joseph as faithful to his father. God then gives Joseph dreams, and rather than shrugging them off, he is so impacted by a divine encounter that he wants to tell everyone about what God has said. I don't think these dreams were just normal dreams. I don't think it was just a dream about, like, you know how you're always, there's a clock ticking, and you're late, late for a very important date. You know, that's the nightmare that I had as a kid, you know, I don't know, I was just, I was late, I was going to be in trouble because I wasn't going to be on time for something. And then it continued in the army. Because if I wasn't in the right place at the right time, in the right uniform, then I was wrong. And so, I don't think this was just a normal dream that you wake up from and be like, whew, glad that's not true. I think in some way, God had revealed himself in these dreams that this was a divine encounter. And that's why Joseph wakes up and he's just bursting from the seams and wants to tell someone that God has spoken to me in a dream. And this isn't the last time that Joseph will be connected to divinely inspired dreams or a divine encounter through dreams. Yes, we may wonder if Joseph maybe should have just whispered these dreams to his father's ears rather than going and like describing them in vivid detail to his murderous brothers. Maybe we, you know, we sit back and be like, yeah, maybe, maybe 17-year-old Joseph was a little over-eager or maybe he should have had a little bit more tact and not just gone and, 
and just been so excited to tell his brothers that they would serve him and bow down to him one day. So maybe, maybe we could ask that question. But overall, Joseph is represented by the scripture as faithful, but maybe overeager. Then we see that when his father gives him a difficult task to track down his brothers who just traveled north through enemy territory, when, when Jacob gives Joseph this task, Joseph responds with, here I am. This, this phrase is, 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 is usually connected with someone who's faithful, who's ready and willing to serve the one who is his authority. Samuel says this when he hears God in a dream as a child, and he's, he's, he's serving in the, in, the, in the tabernacle. He hears God calling out to him in a dream, and he thinks, he thinks it's um, someone, some man calling out to him, the person he was serving. And he, every time he says, here I am, here I am. You called for me, here I am. Um, and so this is always, this phrase is connected with someone who's faithful, who's ready to, to serve. And Joseph calls out with, here I am, and obeys his father's instructions. Going above and beyond to seek out his brothers, traveling upwards of a hundred kilometers north. So we're not told anyone else was with him, and we weren't told about like the, the beautiful strong camel that he was riding on. We're just told this this image of him traveling north by himself a hundred kilometers to find his brothers in Dothan. But what we see in this story, and what we should just pause and think about just for a second, is that even Joseph's faithfulness and his zeal to obey and honor his father, these great admirable things in a 17-year-old, even these things create the opportunity for others to commit evil deeds against him, for others to mistreat him. He's walking into a trap, and it is his zeal and his faithfulness that takes him there. Think about how easy it would have been for him just to have stopped and checked him when he's wandering around the fields and learned, they're not here. They're not here. I'm just going to go back. I'm tired. I'm hungry. My food is almost out because this is as much food as I had planned for. I'm just going to go home. But instead, he travels almost the same distance further north, 100 kilometers, to go find them out of zeal and faithfulness. And we might wonder, why God? Why? Why the dreams which you knew would only poison Joseph's brothers against him more? Why not send dreams of warning? And why, God, why permit a random stranger to meet Joseph wandering like a lost lamb in the fields of, 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 of Shechem? And why did this random man just happen to know exactly where his murderous brothers were? I just happened to overhear them say they're going to go on to Dothan. And why, oh why, do you lead Joseph into the snare of wicked men? Like an innocent sheep headed to the slaughterhouse. Brothers and sisters, may I suggest to you that if your deepest desire, if my, if the, the deepest desire of my heart is to never be taken advantage of or mistreated by others, if that's my deepest desire, then I will either fail to be a true Christian in an attempt to protect myself, or I will become bitter and angry with God and my fellow man when my Christianity causes and brings pain. That's what we see in Joseph's faithfulness and his zeal to obey his father, is that it takes him into pain. And I don't think anyone, as they study this passage, can really say that God was trying to avoid this pain. In fact, we see that God was setting up this encounter. He was using the wickedness of man their evil plot to accomplish His good. And Christians, may I encourage you to study this and to think on this seriously, deeply, because many of us love our comfort. We love, we, we hate pain. I hate pain. But if my, the deepest desire of my heart is to be comfortable and to avoid pain and mistreatment by others, then I will either fail to be a Christian or in my attempts at Christianity, I will become bitter and angry with God as He allows me and He permits wicked men to act out pain in my life. Sometimes it's not even people we call wicked men. Sometimes it's even in the church as we are just trying to be faithful to God in the local church. People in the local church, our brothers and sisters in Christ, even bring pain. 
So I, so I encourage you to think on this as I have, that we cannot, we cannot make uh, comfort and, and fair treatment and the lack of pain in our heart, in our lives. We cannot make these must-haves as we seek to serve God faithfully as Christians. Because God's ways are not our ways. And we must bow the knee to His wise and good rule over all things. We must even bow our knees in trust and hope to God when God permits wicked men to mistreat us. This is Joseph's story. He is the helpless lamb walking up to the pack of wolves. That's what we're walking into right now. Here's this lamb. He's 17 year old, innocent, trying to be faithful. And there's a pack of wolves he's walking up to. And God permits this to continue. There is clear hope and confidence in God for a Christian to gain through studying Joseph's faithful suffering. So that is clearly here in the story. But we must be careful not to automatically compare ourselves to Joseph alone. We've got to be careful not to do this because we will then forget to be warned by the evil outcome of the older brother's desires, of their wickedness. So we should also seriously consider the warning in the lives of these older brothers who act out wickedness. Notice with me the progression from simply having motives to commit evil deeds. And now in this section we just read, the brothers have the opportunity to commit evil deeds as well. The brothers at first only expressed their bitterness and hatred through hateful speech. So they just couldn't speak peacefully to him. Because their dad and their other family members were around. There's a lot of accountability and witnesses. And you know, it just it clearly would not have been kosher for them to act out any physical violence towards him at home. But now they are in pagan Dothan, far away from anyone who feared God, and they were away from any form of accountability. There is a reason in our lives, in our experiences, there is a reason why sinful desires come crush, crashing on the door of our souls when we are away. When we're by ourselves on a business trip. Or when we are by ourselves in a hotel room with nothing to do but watch TV by ourselves and waste time. There is a reason why temptation comes crashing at our, the door of our souls during times like this. And for this reason, God has given Christians healthy forms of accountability in the family and within the local church. Which bolster our defenses to protect us from the weakness of our flesh. We should not despise the grace of God and the gifts of God that He gives to us as Christians through accountability. We should not pretend that we are so low warriors who don't need accountability with other people or the encouragement of God's church. We should rejoice in godly accountability and encouragement in our fight against temptation because that is a gift from God. So let's rejoice in the gift of God of family members and friends who love God and His local church as we strive against sin and temptation and the weakness of the flesh together as the family of God. But we might say, the brothers in the story did have each other. Surely siblings in a God-fearing family were enough. I use that word God-fearing family very loosely. In this scenario, in reality, the brothers find themselves among evil companions. So, not only are they away from accountability, they're also in the midst of evil companions. As they see Joseph approaching in his extravagant robe, don't forget the robe, he's walking up in his princeling robe, which is really becomes the physical, invisible symbol of everything they hate about him. So, as he comes walking up, they instantly, very naturally, and it's been building for a long time, they instantly conspire against him to kill him. So Christians, what we can see from this is that we need to watch the words and actions and the heart attitudes of those we work with and those we spend time with. And when we realize that we are among evil companions, we're to be on guard against temptation. We're to be prepared to speak and act boldly for what is right. And then we also have to be prepared that when we stand up for what is right, 
We need to be prepared to suffer for it. So there really is a strength and a confidence and a, and a following through if we prepare our hearts for these things before they even come crashing at our door. So as somebody who has worked among evil companions, I was in the right place, the right uniform, in the, the right time, and I was surrounded by evil companions. Sometimes doing the right thing means they are going to be all around you. It's not necessarily we're just like we're just looking for the tent of the wicked to just go hang out there. It's not not necessarily the case for the Christian. Sometimes you're at work, the right place, right time, right uniform, and you're surrounded by evil companions. So when we when we find ourselves in that situation, we must be we must realize that temptation has been ramped up. We must be prepared to speak and act boldly for I was right, and then when we do, be prepared to suffer for the right. Finding themselves away from accountability and among evil companions, the brothers see this opportunity and they find this opportunity to give in and commit the evil deeds to tempting. And so we've seen the opportunity for evil and they have not fled from it or guarded themselves against it. And now we find out what happens next. Verse 18, let's continue reading through the rest of the chapter. They, the, the ten older brothers, saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben, this is the oldest brother, when Reuben heard it, he rescued them out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into, his, into this pit in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah, this is one of the sons of Leah, Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our, our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. The Midianite traders passed by. And they drew Joseph up and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned, he must have been inspecting the sheep or something. When, when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he, Jacob, identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. In this section, we see the means of evil deeds. A means is simply the ability to carry out an action or the tools which give you that ability. And this passage reads like a laundry list of the brothers' means, how they're going to commit their evil plans. They first took wicked counsel together to destroy Joseph. They got other people on their side. They start talking and they're like, we all agree to act out. So they got agreement, wicked counsel. Then they used violence to strip off Joseph's robe. This is the, this is the language of skinning an animal. That, the, that Genesis uses. They skinned him of his robe, and they threw him into a pit which, which was too deep for him to climb out of. This would eventually lead to Joseph's dying from dehydration, and the brothers' hands would be clean. And we, we do see this interruption of the plan by Reuben, 
where Reuben's, although Reuben was part of those who hated Joseph, he hated Joseph. He had a greater desire in some sense to protect him, to not commit murder, to return him to his father. So we do see this interruption of the plan, but he did not come right out and rebuke his younger brothers for their wickedness. Uh, we don't know all the situation. We just see that Reuben's attempt to save Joseph, not because he didn't hate him, not because his motives were entirely pure, but that in some way he desired more to maintain his relationship with his father. That seems to be why Reuben interrupts their plans to kill him. Another tool the brothers wielded was hardness of heart. We know this because after they throw him into the pit, they sat down and ate a meal. Later in Genesis, we find out that Joseph, as they were eating their meal and just sitting there around the pit, that Joseph pleaded with him. He wept and cried out for mercy. Please don't do this wickedness. Please, please, brothers, don't do this to me. But they sat there and they digested a meal. Can you imagine sitting down and, and doing this while your baby brother was crying out for mercy? This is where hardness of heart takes us. If we allow our heart to become hard toward God and toward the people that God has made in His image, this is where it will take us. It will excuse atrocious sins. Judah then sees slavers traveling south to Egypt and his greed is kindled. So we've seen wicked counsel, violence, hardness of heart, and now we add to it greed, which leads to Joseph being sold for a profit. And finally, the brothers employ deceit to just conceal their evil deeds as every hidden sin requires. Hidden sins, secret sins require deceit to keep the lie going. You have to keep covering the hidden sin with more coverings of deceit. Throw another blanket on it, another one, another one, until it is ultimately revealed or confessed. There is so much we can learn from this chapter. And honestly, I, I, I ran out of time for how this is so crucial for Christians to take to heart this warning. But in conclusion, let's at least admit that this that one thing this chapter does vividly describe is the conspiracy to commit evil deeds and everything that led up to it in the heart, physically, the means. So we have motive, opportunity, means. This all culminated in attempt, the attempted murder of Joseph because let's be honest, that selling someone into slavery is just a sh like a slower portion, uh, way of murdering somebody. They hoped he would die in Egypt. The passage is a warning of the spiritual journey that unconfessed bitterness, hatred, and jealousy will take us on. This is a warning. Don't even let those seeds be planted in your heart. Rip the weeds of bitterness out before they grow into something out of control. This passage is a warning of the consequences of doing solo Christianity, living away from accountability and fellowship, and all you have around you are wicked men or wicked companions. This passage is a warning against picking up the, any tool of the devil in our daily lives, like wicked counsel, violence, hardness of heart, greed, or deceit. Let's... Let's call them what they are, tools of the devil, and let's determine not to pick these up and use them in our lives to try and shape a better world. No, leave them on the ground. Leave them as part of this cursed world. This chapter also reminds the follower of God that we must bow the knee to the wise rule of God in every circumstance. There cannot be things in our lives that we must have. Things that if we don't get them, then we're going to hit the eject button on God or His church or rebel against God's rule in some way. That's what the older brothers did. They had to have something. When they didn't get it, they hit the eject button on God's rule in their life. And think about how easy it would have been for Joseph to hit the eject button on God or to deny God because God hadn't protected him. Think about how easy that would have been as he's being dragged off to Egypt 
behind a camel through the wilderness, traveling south to Egypt, right past his father's dwelling. He went back south, and we know that he passed by his father dwelling as he traveled south to Egypt. How easy would it have been to be like, God, why did you not save me? Why didn't you send my father a dream saying that Joseph is being dragged off to Egypt? Your precious son, your firstborn, ride out to meet him. Like Abraham rode out and crushed the foreign armies who had invaded the land. Why not? It would have been so easy for Joseph to hit the eject button if his heart was, was knitted together with his own safety and his own health, wealth, and well-being. So this is something that we need to take to heart. But finally, this chapter awakens in the Christian's heart, awakens love in the Christian's heart as we recognize the biblical theme of the suffering servant. Now, I haven't really touched on this because it is going to develop throughout this story. But briefly this morning, just to whet your appetite for the beauty of God's Word and the story that in the narrative that God is writing through the lives of these patriarchs, let us realize that as we, as we recognize the biblical theme of the suffering servant, our love is to be awakened. Our love and our awareness of the one who was loyal and faithful to his father. One who was favored by his father and sent by his father. One who walked as a lamb into a pack of wolves. One who would be betrayed, sold, stripped naked, and left for dead by his brothers. One who was despised and rejected by those he would save. Think about it. Despised, rejected by the ones he would save. The story of Joseph sets the stage for the suffering servant whom God would exalt in his good time. And although there are many valuable moral lessons, I mean, we looked at a lot of moral lessons today in this one chapter. And although there are many, and we should take these to heart, and and we we will learn many more as we walk through the story of Joseph. But with these moral lessons that we're looking at, my hope as we see the suffering servant through Joseph... My hope is that your morality will be fueled by the love-producing reality that Jesus is the better Joseph. Think about that for a second. A love-producing reality that Joseph isn't the ultimate person in the story. That Jesus is the better Joseph. Jesus is the one that Joseph's life ultimately points to. We, now let this stir love, we are the sinful brothers who are in need of forgiveness for our sins against Him and who are in need of salvation from destruction. That's the picture. He is Joseph. He is the better Joseph. We are the sinful brothers. Jesus is the brother who is exalted through suffering. We are the brothers who bow down to Him in His glory. We must all come to Jesus as the sinful brothers. Not pumping our chest and saying, I'm the better Joseph. All God's laws I have kept from my youth. That's what the rich young ruler came to Jesus saying. In his pride. All God's laws I have kept from my youth. No. We must all come to Jesus humbled by the extent of our own wicked hearts to this day. Yes, He has cleansed us and saved us in the past if we are Christians. But to this day, wickedness dwells in the heart. It clings to us. And we long for the day when He will give us glorified bodies where it is gone forever. But right now, in this life, we are to come to Jesus with the realization our hearts are still still deceptive, still lying to us. Our minds still need to be renewed by the Word and our lives transformed by His grace. We must all come to Jesus humbled by the extent of our own wicked hearts and trusting in the King to grant mercy to the one who comes by faith, repenting of his sins. That is a glimpse at the story of Joseph that we're going to spend the next couple of months studying together. Let us go to the Lord in prayer and thank Him for His this beautiful story.
Lord God Almighty, I thank you for this beautiful story of the suffering servant that is a picture, a glimpse of the one who would come. I praise you for Jesus, who is the better Joseph. Praise be to God, who in his wise and sovereign rule over all the earth has planned these things out. And even in the midst of the wickedness of evil men attempting to murder their own baby brother, in the midst of wickedness, God works out your good purpose. Praise be to God our God. Praise be to God for how he has sent Jesus into the world to be, to be rebuked, rejected, persecuted, and ultimately killed by those he would offer salvation to after his resurrection. Praise be to the Father and to the Son and to the Spirit for the glorious work of salvation that you began before the ages or even began before creation even started before the first rays of light entered the universe you your plan stands and you have accomplished it and you will be praised for eternity by the vessels of your grace praise be to god amen